one of the things that somebody said to me that was so powerful um, and that I've never forgotten, um, if you're in a relationship that you can say this, if you say something like, we are in this together, we will get through this together. There's such power in the, the camaraderie. You don't feel so alone. Yes. Um, and, and that, that really stuck with me. So even as providers to say like, we will get through this together. We will research who can help you. We will research, you know, a support group. We will, that, that sense of togetherness, I think is really, really powerful. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey y'all, I am Jamara and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Noelle, do you want to say a couple of things about yourself? Sure. So I'm glad to be able to join today. Um, I'm also a uh, Floridian. I'm joining from Winter Park, Florida. Uh, I'm Noelle Moore, and I'm the executive director uh, for the Finley Project, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into uh, today. And then I'm also a coach and a consultant with a company called No More Consulting. Okay. Yeah. So we're not that far from each other. No, we're right down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I've started getting into your book. I haven't finished it yet, but it's pretty amazing what I've read so far. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. uh, It was definitely a scary process for sure. Yeah. When did it come out? So uh, it's been in process for years, but it finally came out in July of this year. So 2022. So it's pretty new. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it on Amazon and I got the Kindle version because that's how I like to do it. Read it on my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there an audio version? No, no audio version. So there's, there's actually two parts and I'm sure we'll talk more, but so there's a book, which is more like the, my biography, but then Mm -hmm. there's a separate piece, which is the care guide. And that's really designed for caretakers and and friends and family. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So I first heard about you through a former client of mine who um, lost a baby and then was directed to you somehow and really spoke highly of your program and how it really helped her following the loss of her child. Um, So you want to tell us a little bit about the Finley Project for people who've never heard? Sure, be happy to. So the Finley Project is named after 
uh, my daughter Finley, um, and uh, I'll share a little about my story because I, I think it's important um, to understand the why, why it started. So uh, in 2013, um, my dad had died, and at that time I was five months pregnant. And then um, fast forward to uh, nine months, uh, I was admitted into an area hospital. Um, happy, it was a happy day, full term, uh, no complications. And after two, uh, two days of induction and laboring, um, uh, both of my primary uh, OBs had left the property. And um, shortly thereafter, I needed an emergency C-section. And so I was rushed into um, the OR. Um, I was prepped, I was um, waiting and I waited and I waited and I waited. I waited almost 45 minutes for an OB to get there to perform uh, the emergency C-section. And uh, Finley I read was- in, I read in your book that at one point somebody asked, was it the anesthesiologist if mm -hmm. they could do a C-section? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, he asked, somebody was saying, can't you still do one so-and-so? Where is so-and-so? Is she in the cafeteria? There was not one OB on property to help. And um, so we were literally waiting in chaos just everywhere. Um, and uh, eventually my OB got back and did the C-section and got her out. Um, she suffered severe brain damage because of the delay in care, um, put on a uh, life support. Um, and the next couple of weeks we have this beautiful, almost eight pound baby, but like what, like now what, like what, what happens. Right. And so as her parents were faced with all these things, like we never dreamed of facing, um, and, uh, eventually, uh, a really, really kind neonatologist came to us and said, listen, like she'll never walk. She'll never talk. Like she, she will not have a quality of life like that you would dream of for her. So we had to make the worst decision. And so 20, almost 23 days after she um, came into this world, we had to let her go from this world. We had to release her. It was worst, literally worst day of my life. Um, so we walked down that NICU hallway and we're um, down the elevator and we walk out and it's like, now what? Like, how do we go on with our, our baby, our daughters back there, like into this world? And so, um, it was, it was in that moment that I, it was scary. It was the first time I really felt like an intensity, like a fear of like, how do I survive now? Like, how do I navigate this? Um, and, and it was, it was ugly. It was not, it was not good at all. Yeah. I want to thank you for being so brave about sharing your story and talking about this. Cause I know it's, it's not easy every time it's not easy. And I feel like you have turned this tragedy um, into a work that is very beautiful and helpful to so many people. So I want to say thank you before we get into what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, to me, it's a, to say her name means to honor her. So I really, it really is a privilege, truthfully, to get to talk about her and my journey. So I, thank you for having me too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so my friend was talking about how the project really addresses so many areas um, of the grieving process and so many different parts that are often overlooked, everything from groceries to house cleaning to therapy. Um, 
So that's amazing. So tell me more about what your project does and who's eligible. Sure. So when I walked, like I mentioned to you walking out of the hospital and like, where does a person like me fit? Like now I'm in this new category, you know, I'm no longer in my mind, uh, mom, it felt like that, even though I was. Um, and so initially I knew I needed more help. Like I knew I needed more help than just, you know, like families and friends trying to help me. I needed a professional's help. Um, and so once I started getting counseling very shortly thereafter, I kept thinking like, but who helps people like me? There was nothing. There was, there was nothing. I, I had to figure out how to pay for counseling. Um, and so that's when the light bulbs were like starting to go off in me, even in that early, that early awful grief, like I need to be able to provide counseling for women. I was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I had it solved. Like I'm going to do so the, the first lady almost shortly after Finley died that I had heard that had lost her baby. Um, I said, Hey, I want to figure out how to pay for counseling for you. And she said, you know, Noelle, honestly, I've been living in the Ronald McDonald house. My baby was really, really sick. My home's a mess. Like I want to go to counseling, but I'm not there yet. And so it caused me to literally stop and say, wait a second. Like how do we effectively help women from a holistic approach to then eventually earn their trust to then get them into counseling? And so I took a step back and I was like, what are, what are the things that women need? What do people need? You know, what's our basic, what are some of our basic human needs, which includes food, shelter, you know, all of those things. And so, yeah, the program does include, um, include seven things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So tell me the seven, they're groceries, cleaning, therapy. Yeah. You have almost all of them. Okay. I got three. So, <laughs> so we help plan the funeral um, okay. because, you know, when a child dies, like you don't ever anticipate having to do that. So we help plan the funeral, uh, meal gift cards, house cleaning, which is uh, a big one, uh, massage therapy, um, uh, support group placement, counseling, and then peer support. So those are the, the seven things. Love it. So, Thanks. so important. Yeah. And I'm currently reading this book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that, but mm -hmm. I mean, the massage is accessing different areas where our body is holding these emotions. Oh, so. yeah. You know, for, for, for some women, it's the physical touch, the actual release, right? For some women, it's the anticipation and the hope of having something to look forward to. I mean, there's just so many things that I think the benefit that massage benefits or women benefit from massage from. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And it's all tied in together. Mm -hmm. So my uh, former client accessed this here from the East coast of Florida, where all is the Finley project working currently? So we're based in central Florida, but we are in 39 States. So we have uh, women in 39 states, hundred, a couple hundred hospitals represented. Um, so we can help in any state in the, in the U S. Okay. And from what I was reading on your website, um, people that are eligible are people that have lost a baby after 20 weeks. Yeah. So it's 20 week gestation up through two years of age. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's any, like any condition, any like nature of death is we don't help a particular type of loss. It's any type of loss. Mm -hmm. And when do you want these women to enroll in your program? 
So we really are, our program, is, the model is based on kind of like an urgent, um, urgent need. So those things that we mentioned are when a mom's really in the fog phase, which is 30 to 60 days after loss. So 60, we're looking at now 60 to 90 days after loss. Okay. So the primary audience of this podcast are midwives, Mm -hmm. you know, they're dealing with birthing their whole entire career and they're going to come some, they're going to come across some loss sometimes. And so having this resource of knowing where to plug people in at is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause I know a lot of programs don't cover this side of it. We cover everything to try to avoid this, (laughs) but when it actually happens, how do we deal with it? How do we help people get through it? You know, and I do, it's a good, that's a really important point. I think there's a lot of, there's some research that just talks about like a patient's perception. If they feel like you provided them some tools and resources, even after this loss, that can be so tragic. They see the provider as so much more compassionate and caring, like they weren't left hanging. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, like to hear these women that, oh my gosh, my midwife or my OB, they told me about you. And like, I'm so thankful they did. And it, it is, there's this full circle, like I think uh, that can help a lot. Yeah. So I, I haven't finished your book. I'm probably about halfway through. <laughs> um, what are things that you think are helpful for people to do or say in the immediate lost time? Sure. So I get asked that a lot because I think it's so scary. Like people are so afraid of it. Right. Like, um, and I, I actually say to say that, like, I don't know what to say. And this is so hard and it is so awful. I, I advise people to call out what's, what's obvious. Right. So like, I don't understand. I don't understand why this happened. Um, it is so awful. I can't believe you're going through this. I can't imagine like that you have to deal with. I, one of the things that somebody said to me that was so powerful um, and that I've never forgotten. Um, if you're in a relationship that you can say this, if you say something like we are in this together, we will get through this together. There's such power in the, the camaraderie. You don't feel so alone. Um, and, and that, that really stuck with me. So even as providers to say like, we will get through this together, we will research who can help you. We will research, you know, a support group. We will, that, that sense of togetherness, I think is really, really powerful. Okay. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, what about long-term things to say or do? I, um, I'll often tell people, Uh, families are frantic when this loss happens, right? Because we got to fix so-and-so. We got to fix her quickly. We got to put all the pieces back together and make her back. She, she's never going to be back. Like there's, she's gone. She's over here. And so I really encourage people to focus on the long-term and what, what to me that looks like is um, send cards, send cards for six months to a year, you know, put a reminder on your calendar. I'm just going to send a card. I'm going to send a text. I have a friend who uh, on Finley's birthday, since the day that she, or on the 25th of every single month, since Finley has died, I get a little heart, I get a little bow, I get something that reminds me that she hasn't forgotten. And that simple act of letting that person know you haven't forgotten is amazing. 
Um, so I think just uh, kind of thinking long-term in the sense of like six months to a year, sending something. And uh, I write about this in, in my book actually, but about having thick skin. Okay, so what does that actually mean? Like after in, in helping somebody, there are times when they will not respond. They will not thank you. You know, they will not um, think your meal is amazing and they, you know, they, they won't tell you, you know, or they won't thank you for calling them, but they, they appreciate it. You know, sometimes they just can't express, express their gratitude. And so I would, I would encourage people have thick skin when you're supporting somebody long-term. Definitely. Because it's not about you. It's yeah. Yeah. About- it's about yeah. the grieving person and they're going through their process and you're there to support them. And so I would say, yeah, that's a definite essential. Mm-hmm. And there is, I did a section called, it's not about you in my book, because I think that's one of the, even in my position that I'm in and I've been through this, I think sometimes remembering that it's not about, about you. Um, that goes back to the initial, the initial, um, things that people don't know what to do or say because they feel uncomfortable. It's not about you. You need to let them know that, hey, I don't understand why this happened. Hey, this is hard. Hey, this sucks. Like, I don't get it, you know? Putting yourself out there because it isn't about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the more tender moments from your book is when you had some really close friends that came over and you guys all just sat in the bed and ate candy together. Yeah, I do. I love that part. Um, I smile because like, those are, those are the exact things, you know, back to your question about what people can do, not having any expectations, um, just going and sitting, maybe bringing a book and just being there, like letting them know that somebody's with them. Like that is very um, healing. Um, Just, you know, not uh, having, like I said, any expectations for conversation or explanations or um, platitudes there there's just being present with them um is really really helpful yeah and you had someone else in the book I guess at a certain point you still couldn't make phone calls so they came over and just made some phone calls for you people you needed to call yeah yeah I um that I actually almost had the title of my book something about like can't think or fog or um, because when you're in such heavy grief, basic tasks feel impossible, like such as calling or making a meal or taking a shower. And so just um, having people make those hard phone calls, uh, whether it's to counseling groups or to place an order for food or um, to cancel some, you know, your hair appointment or just some basic calls, that's a huge help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I was amazed you, you talk about going to a one-year-old birthday party, you know, shortly after your loss and just that you felt like you couldn't, you didn't know how to say no to that yet. And so that this process helped you realize that you, you have a right to say no to whatever is not going to serve you in your grief process. You know, that was a, golly, that was a painful, painful day. I drive up and I see all the cars, like familiar cars these are my friends. Like, these are my people. And I didn't want to disappoint them. And I, I wanted to show support and like, I could barely walk through the front door and then you walk through the front door and there's like all these little ones, like very similar to Finley's age, you know, like babies and toddlers and, and, uh, 
you know, your you feel like your heart falls out underneath you. Like you just, you, you can't even function, you know? Um, and I definitely think I learned quickly self-preservation. I learned how to preserve my emotions and my um, energy by saying no, mm -hmm. because I was really, um, I was putting myself in positions that was actually making things a lot worse for me. Yeah. And I think probably like triggering PTSD. Oh know. yeah, absolutely. Very much, very, very triggering. And, you know, I think the whole thing I, I mentioned um, a little bit before hinted at was there's a shift of like your identity, right? So like those people that were your people, all those people at the one-year-old's birthday, they may not be my people down the road, right? And so I felt like I had to try to please these people with me being me, my old, my old self, but they ended up, a lot of them weren't my people moving forward anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I like the way you put it in your book that, you know, it was, you know, their choice to invite you and it was mm -hmm. your choice to say no. And, you know, it might've felt nice to be included, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, also wise to say no when those things are going to be triggering and you're not ready for them. Yeah. I think that is the way I kind of phrase it. I think in the book was talking about like, just continue to extend an, an, an invitation, the olive branch, even if they say no every single time, mm -hmm. at least they know that you're thinking of them. At least yeah. they know that they're not forgotten. And I know on a practical level, like sometimes seeing babies can be triggering, seeing pregnant women can be triggering, going back to the hospital can be triggering. Um, I had a client who did not see me for her birth um, or prenatal care but she didn't want to go back to that OB. And so she asked what I do postpartum care on her because she just couldn't bring herself to go back to that office. So mm -hmm. different things can be really triggering. And um, I, I, I hear that. We probably one of the biggest things that women will not express openly. I see it in our private forums. I see it in, in some of our support groups. Um, they'll talk a lot about how they feel like they are such an awful person because they cannot be around their sister's new baby or they go into a store and they see a baby and they literally have to turn around and walk out. And um, they feel just, they feel so uh, frustrated with themselves. Like, why can't I just be okay with this? This is part of life, right? Um, and, you know, we all like, you know, rally around them and assure them, like, we all feel that, a lot of us feel that way. You know, mm -hmm. that's normal, that's okay to feel yeah. that way. Yeah. And your experience, does that get easier with time? Absolutely. I definitely have seen, uh, even in my own life, like there were years for years, I couldn't be around babies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would see a baby somewhere and I'd have to walk away. And I, I think for all, a lot of our moms, it gets a lot easier, but it takes a, it can take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To not underestimate how long it might take. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like some of our moms will talk about like their follow-up appointment. They had to sit in the OB office and all the pregnant women were coming in and, you know, coming out with their babies. And I mean, even just that whole like process is, can be extremely, extremely traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we midwives, we do a lot of things differently, but I would imagine that it, in that situation, it might be better to do a home visit. Absolutely. 
you know, I, if, I if it's possible, that. if it, it works out, then rather than a woman coming into the midwife's office or the birth center or whatever, you know, if a home visit is feasible, that would be much better. Yeah. And I think like you would ask, like, it does get better. Like there could be a point where, you know, like down the road, she could certainly come to the, to the office or whatever. But I would say initially that's, that would be such a beautiful thing to offer. Like mm-hmm. an in-home visit, that would be amazing. Yeah. So I liked one of your quotes here that says the mom doesn't need you to feel the pain that they feel. They need you to help them get through it. Yeah, I think, um, I think as providers, I, I, you know, I, there's what's, what's our, what's the phrase compassion fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we try to wear that hat all the time, as we're working with women of various degrees, I think it's super hard on us, but I think if we can just be there and listen and be present, I think that's a gift in itself. You know, we don't have to fix it. We don't have to fix it in that moment. I think just offering ourselves and our time is such a gift to them. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, because nothing, nothing we say or do is going to make it go away or make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sociologist quoted in your book, um, the death of the child is the single worst stressor a person can go through. Parents feel responsible for the child's well-being. So when they lose a child, they're not just losing a person they love. They're also losing the years of promise that they had looked forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sense of uh, it, it's, you know, my, I mentioned my dad died right before she did. And I didn't feel responsible for my dad. Right. Like that's just the natural hierarchy of life. That's the natural progression of life. But I did re- feel responsible for Finley because she was mine. I created her. Right. Uh, we created her. And so the guilt and all of that that you feel is very, very heavy after a a child dies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate your honesty in describing that feeling because I think that's a hard emotion to talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, you talk about choosing the hospital you went to or, you know, choosing that OB practice you went to. And I, I wanted to just point in here that a lot of hospitals across the U.S. do not have OBs there all the time. And there's so many counties in the U.S. that are what we call maternity care deserts. And so they don't even have one OB or midwife provider. And women have to drive for an hour or more to get to care. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's people are leaving OB and leaving midwifery. Um, and we- really, women are the ones who are suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, Um, And so I saw that you had developed a hospitalist program. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, to your point, like what you just shared, most people have no idea. The average person doesn't, unless you have an acute awareness that you live in such a rural location, the average person doesn't understand that even hospitals within a metropolitan area, they do not always have full-time coverage. And I was shocked. Like, it was just like, to me, like a well, what do you mean they don't have doctors here all the time? It's a hospital, right? So every time I tell that part of my story, it's very, people are very shocked. Um, and so for me, I, my resolve, my mission became, how do we make sure that there's always a provider there that can help in an emergency? So uh, after discussing and lots of meetings and stuff, uh, after two years, um, after she died, um, that particular hospital system developed an OB hospitals program 
that has, I think, 27, 28 OBs and midwives that now function as staff within the hospital system. Okay. And which hospital yeah. is that at? I'm, I'm not able to say. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's here, in, okay. Flo- it's here in Florida? Here in Florida, yeah. Okay, yes. nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I live in a county with just one hospital that does maternity care. And up until this year, they did not have a hospitalist program. So basically any of their providers, their OB providers could live up to probably 30 minutes away. Um, and the anesthesiologist as well could live that far away. And if they had an emergency, they had to call them in. And so what I would say is that building of the hospital gave people the illusion of safety. I had my, like you said, I had my preconceived notions. It's a hospital. It's safe. It's that's where all the people are. That's where I'll get the, you know, the help. I think for me, I want women to just be aware and to understand their choices and their care, whatever that looks like for them, whatever they're the most comfortable in, just educate yourself. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I just assumed, right? And so for me, I'm really big on like educating women on what their choices are and what they're comfortable with. Yes. And I think that's true. So true is that there's going to be no one that cares more about your health than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so whether that's a family member that has a health condition that you need to really read up on and, you know, learn the ins and outs of, um, and obviously the providers are going to do their best, but there is going to be nobody that cares about your health more than you. Um, on one part of your book, the doctor is explaining that you had low amniotic fluid and just says to you, well, you really don't have a choice. And I hated that phrase because there's always a choice, mm-hmm. you know, and for a provider to say, you don't have any choices, like you don't matter. Your bodily autonomy doesn't matter. You are just a handmaid <laughs> carrying this child. Mm-hmm. You matter. You have a choice. So it could be that this choice is the one I'm recommending. You know, this is how other people might do it. These are different options, but just the statement really irked me about that particular doctor. Well, you don't have a choice. Very Mm -hmm. authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, and once again, that instills the, you, you, so then you start trusting them and you think they're the end all be all. So then it almost puts women in a position to feel like, uh, Ooh, I kind of feel stupid for even asking, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so that's why when I started this, this whole movement, I see it as a movement is to get women to think, like, think, don't just take it, take it for what it is. You can think you have a choice, you know? So I love that you pointed that out because I felt the same way. Very paternalistic. Right. You know, right. Very dominant, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you also have a traumatic part in your story where the, I hope you don't mind if I read this, I figure you've had it in a book. I can. Sure. The nurse took the medication, pushed it in a place inside my body I didn't know existed. I shrieked in pain. My husband finally woke up. I wanted to hit her. She had said it may hurt some, but I shouldn't feel it. That was a lie. I felt sick. It hurt so much. So thinking back on that moment, to me, that sounds like obstetric violence or obstetric rape. You know, that you're in that moment and this person is doing something that's brutally painful to you without really considering how you're feeling. Oh, it was, uh, 
if so much other trauma hadn't happened, like let's say the scenario was very different, how she, if she did end up living, that would have been probably one of the main things I pursued or followed up on because just uh, feeling so violated, I felt so uh, demoralized. Um, I felt so uncared for. Um, it made me feel like, like I was some subservient whatever, like I had no rights and I, it was, uh, and I was alone. I mean, I was alone and this was happening. So yeah, I absolutely felt very violated. Yeah. And I think to the midwives that are listening to this, I mean, old pros probably understand this and know this, but students are learning. And that's one reason why ever we're doing something that's inside the vagina, we should be keeping our eye contact with the woman. We need to look at her face. We need to read her body language and let her know before you even start. If at any point this is too much, let me know. You have the right to stop me at any point. It may be uncomfortable, but if it's too much for you, let me know and put her in control of how it's going. And that could do so much so that we do not traumatize women when something is, you know, recommended or we're trying to do something in the vagina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, seeing that kind of behavior over and over again in, in the hospital that I was working in in Miami is what motivated me to become a midwife. Wow. Because a lot of people had become calloused to the effect that they were having on the patient. And I knew that I needed to go back to school and be, have a different role in all of this, or I was going to become just like them. Hmm. Like just wow. the organizational culture that I was a part of down in Miami. Hmm. Whew. Okay. Um, yeah. So the other highlight from your book, I really liked it says, why I wondered later, was I so okay with going with what they said? I wish I hadn't blindly trusted so much. I wish I had spoken up to ask more questions. I had a strange and unsettled gut feeling, not understanding why things were taking so long. But I pushed those thoughts aside and simply trusted the doctor. I was the one who had never done this before. She was the experienced authority. Oh, um, which is, it's so crazy because in my normal life, my normal self, I, I don't, I always speak up, you know, I, I fight for the underdog. I, I, you know, I, I've been like that since I was a child. And so it was so strange with this experience. Uh, and, you know, that's where some of the guilt plays in, but why didn't I, why didn't I demand like something different to occur? Like, why did I trust this woman that I, I met a handful of times, like, I didn't have to, but I did. Um, and so I, I just tell women once again, like trust your gut and use your voice if it doesn't feel right or feels uncomfortable or you're not okay with it. Definitely, definitely. And I think that, you know, the, the attitude that was expressed there by your doctor and is the normal situation in, in most practices. You know, there are some practices of obese that they say you're not allowed to have a doula. We don't accept people who have doulas, which is a labor support. That's a red flag right there. They don't want anyone asking questions or standing up for the patients. 
you know, what's going on behind these doors that they don't want anyone witnessing. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. Florida I th- is one of the worst states in the country to give birth in. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the statistics yeah. bear statistics that out. Statistics are terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Um, what else do you think would be helpful for midwives to know um, if one of their client has experienced these, this kind of loss? Um, I think with, uh, with loss, I think, um, a declarative statement, like, let's say that this is, you know, you're wrapping something up after this baby has passed away or or died, a a declarative statement, meaning I'm going to call you on Thursday. I want to check, check up on you on Thursday, giving them that definite statement, that definite thing that they can latch on to is really important, right? Because they've just been abandoned. They've been left by this, this beautiful creation is now gone. So they want to latch on to you. So I think just creating that next point, touch point, like, so the mom knows, right? That would be really helpful. I do think um, the power in that long-term follow-up, creating some type of system within your practice to follow up with moms, even if it's, you know, a handwritten card or an email or a text, just something so that they know that they're thought of for at least six months to a year would be really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Do you think beyond that there's value as well? Absolutely. I mean, I've seen these, some of these moms build relationships with their midwives, OBs, neonatologists, they'll, they'll, uh, go to lunch with them. They, they are now a part of their story forever. You know, um, I, I write about it in my book, but like, just you have, uh, the staff has the opportunity, whether good or bad to be in the mom snapshot forever. Right. And so how they handle things, they will now be a part of that little, that little timeline now. Um, and so, uh, if things are handled well and there's follow-up and there's the, the moms will latch on for the most part. And I think years after I've seen moms still stay connected with their OBs and midwives because that follow-up was there. Yeah. And, um, I haven't finished your book, so I'm sorry, but after your loss, what was your relationship to your OB like? Okay. So, um, let me, let me me see how I want to explain this. So when my dad died, we, I only had seen her a few times. So I had moved. So I moved when I was seven months pregnant. So this OB was, she was very new to me and her partner were very new to me. Once this all happened, uh, it, it was not good. There was no relationship. There was no accountability. There was no, well, I'm sorry. There was nothing. It was more so like, oh, this stuff happens. Well, it didn't have to happen. And so I channeled my anger and my hatred truthfully towards them into this positive movement. Right. But, um, there was nothing. I mean, uh, there was I don't know. I never saw them after that. Okay. Yeah. And one thing that I really struck me was when Finley was born and not crying, the room was became quiet except for the counting of instruments by my OB. She said nothing to me, but chatted with a staff member about personal business, just an average day in the OR. 
that's a horrific statement to me yeah I mean I uh I felt like uh I felt like one of many I felt like I was at Disney World like one of many amusement goers one of many in the crowd um and you know that's why I keep talking about the importance of that one-on-one that one-on-one follow-up I mean you know these women are hanging on by a thread I mean I see it day in and day out um you know if if we don't do a good job wrapping our arms around them and loving on them for the months and years after it's it's a it's a pretty horrific outcome for some of these ladies and how much would have it cost that OB for her to tell you what was happening for her to say the baby's been born the baby's not breathing they're working on the baby right now you know just to take you step by step and realize the crucial importance of what was going on in that room even if she had come around and breathed and everything was great talking through that process could have helped you a lot process what was going on yeah i think um even at the back of her head she knew maybe she had done something wrong if she had stayed with me there would have been a lot less animosity that i would have had towards them uh even if the ultimate result was still the same but the fact that she just went and not even just that blatant disrespect in those moments, like there's, I, I didn't have any room for that in my life. Yeah. You talked about how they, you could see them on the floor and they were chatting amongst themselves, but they didn't come and talk to you and that mm-hmm. you felt so alone and so abandoned. Mm-hmm. And it was nobody's fault. It went like this, you know, there was, there was no accountability and I know my instant, my situation is very unique and it is. And I know a lot of times there are no answers, but to at least try to process that with the mom and not just act like, oh, this happens, this is how it is. That, that is actually, um, it's very detrimental to not process with the mom what, what may have happened or what, what did, you know, could have, not could have been different, but what may have happened is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as midwives were involved in resuscitation, um, some of us in the hospital, some of us out of the hospital, I myself do the home birth. And that's one thing I try to do, even as I'm resuscitating, I'll have one of my staff explain what's going on. And I do anticipatory guidance before the birth and explain to women that 1% of babies need resuscitation. And I talk about what that looks like. So that if they're the 1% that they know what's going on and, you know, it's, it helps, it helps them to stay calm and, to you know, for, for us to, to, for them to realize what we're working hard for their baby, you know? Mm-hmm. I do think that's important. You use the word anticipatory. I think that's actually really important for a second, like a, the baby after, so the rainbow baby, mm-hmm. I think there's so much anxiety around that second child and next child. Um, I think like, like you said, just talking through the things that could happen, talking through what this is going to look like for you this next time, maybe some of the things you're going to feel because nobody wants to talk about that. It's, it's supposed to be happy. You're pregnant again. It's wonderful. Like, but these moms, I hear it. They're like, they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. And one thing that I've learned is that for that rainbow baby, that rainbow pregnancy, Usually you're going to be nervous at least until the point of where you lost your baby before and many times the whole entire pregnancy. So even someone who's had a first trimester loss, a miscarriage, 
once they make it past that, they might feel slightly better, but they're still going to be on edge. Well, what's going to go wrong next or what's what's going to happen next? And that may continue on into the postpartum period. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. How many moms do you think that you've helped with the Finley Project? Do you have that data? We do. Um, we are almost at, we have almost 400 women in the program currently that we've helped. So okay. 400 across the U.S. Nice. Mm-hmm. Do you have any stories or any um, examples of things you want to share from them? Sure. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll share some things that I think were really hard. Um, for us, I think uh, we've seen we've seen some tough things lately. I'll be honest with you, but I, I will share a story that I think is really beautiful. Um, a mom that we helped, she had twins. Um, her name's Chelsea. She doesn't mind me sharing. Her name's Chelsea. Chelsea had twins, um, and when they were born, the little girl had um, been diagnosed with Down syndrome, and so the little boy was perfectly healthy and all of this. So she was always very concerned about. Um, the little girl, um, just her health and, you know, is she going to be okay and this and that. And, um, uh, four months, um, into their lives, they put them down for a nap and, uh, she went to wake up, you know, the kiddos and, uh, the little boy was the one that didn't wake up. And so we met Chelsea a week after a week after, um, the little boy had passed away and, um, her husband had just lost his job. Um, she's dealing with all the things of this child dying and DCF investigations and all this. Um, she shared with me that she didn't even know how to, to take her daughter for a walk because she had the stroller that was a double stroller. And so, um, a group of us went out and just bought her a single stroller and, and, and did that with her and walked through that with her. But Basically, the fact that when we gave them the gift cards to buy their food and their groceries, just that act alone, because he had lost his job, she just was ecstatic. She couldn't just so thankful for just that gesture, right? Cleaning her home after this, this intrusion of people and DCF and cops and all of these things. So Chelsea, to me, is like that person that every aspect of our program really helped. The counseling, you know, support group, all of it. And now she's super involved. Her husband's on our board. Um, They're doing great. Their marriage made it. Um, It's almost six years later, seven years later, and they have four other kids. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about in your book how your marriage didn't make it. Um, And I've heard myself that a lot of marriages don't make it through grief. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, there's some there's some different data out there. This this is what I'll I'll speak of from my experience. I think what happens is obviously we know men and women grieve very differently. I think that's like a statement we we hear over and over. But what I encourage women to do is you need your own group of women to talk to and process with. And and men function and they move. They they do. They're doers, right? And so if you can allow them that space to just do what they want to do, eventually, like some of the data shows three to six months later is when they, when it really starts to settle in with them. So if you can let them initially just do their thing, right, then eventually they'll come around. Um, and so I, I encourage women just if, if he's not talking, it's okay. You know, if he's not crying how you're crying, it's okay. 
you know, um, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your support group, talk to us, talk to your counselor, you know, mm-hmm. use your outlets. Yeah. Men, I think tend to check out a little more, might be going to the gym more or playing more video mm-hmm. games or yeah. 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 It's very true. Yeah. And um, the last thing I just wanted to end with is this description you had of the uh, broken heart syndrome. Um, You talked about a condition that presents oddly like a textbook heart attack. Symptoms include crushing chest pain, ST segment elevation on EKG, and elevated cardiac enzymes on the lab results. Did you experience that? I had, and I, once again, I see this a lot, the, the, the symptoms, all of the things that the broken heart syndrome looks like, uh, myself and many others experience it and almost presents like a panic attack. Mm-hmm. It almost presents like, a, um, like your breath is out your, from underneath you. Um, and a lot of times it's associated with, um, and I've seen it with just a sense of overwhelming something gets really really overwhelming like things start coming at you questions or another responsibility or something like that after grief and that's when that it's almost like that panic attack hits but it's it's the broken heart syndrome okay. I definitely experience that and I I do even sometimes now I mean it's uh it'll hit me and and I realize that's what it is okay Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I'm loving your book. I'm loving the wisdom of your life so far. And I'm just starting to get into all the tips that you give to providers. And you're telling me there's another book I can, I can get a workbook or. Yeah. So here's the, the reason that I uh, wrote the book and the care guide was I had this realization that our organization will not be able to help everybody that falls into the category, right. Of who we help. And I felt bad turning people away, but having the knowledge of our program and how it helps. So I put our program and the steps into a care guide. So it's a separate guide. It's for providers, family members, friends on how to specifically help using our seven parts. Okay, wonderful. Well, I can't wait to read that. I think that I love all the practical things that you have. This is a field that has been neglected. And like you said, when you tried to go to a grief group and they wouldn't let you in Mm -hmm. because your child had not lived long enough, according to them, I thought that was so devastating. And so I am in all of your work and I hope, you you know, that everyone who needs your program can get in and the rest of us providers can become better at dealing with this horrible tragedy. Yeah. I want to thank you too for anybody that's listening because you have such power in, in helping heal and help helping these moms through this process because it's not easy and they need you so thank you for listening mm-hmm.